Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and this week I'm joined by a very special guest, Professor Joseph Nye. Very few people have spent more time at the heart of American foreign policy than at my guest today. Very few people alive have as good a claim as he does to have shaped large parts of that foreign policy, whether it's through his contributions as a thinker uh, in developing some of the core concepts of IR theory over the last few decades, ideas like soft power, complex interdependence, asymmetric interdependence, or through his work as a policymaker in the State Department, the Defense Department, the intelligence community, or through his work in think tanks, where he's been very much part of the hidden wiring of American strategic culture for many decades, but probably um, above all through his work as as a lifelong educator who served as dean of the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, author of many books, and uh, today, very excited to speak about his latest book called A Life in the American Century, which uh, appeared last month in the United States and is appearing in the UK in European bookstores in March. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Well, thanks, Mark, and it's nice to see you again. Great. Well, maybe um, we can sort of start with the idea which you're most uh, closely associated with in the the mind of many of our listeners, which is this sort of idea of of soft power. It's a term that you coined at the very end of the the Cold War. I think, um, was it in the late 1980s or was it in the 90s that that this idea came into fruition? And I think it's both been one of the most influential and and heavily quoted ideas in in IR, um, certainly in my lifetime. But it's, I think, one which is often misquoted, which people kind of misunderstand. How do you feel about soft power now looking back at its um at its uh few first few decades of existence well soft power as i define it is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion or payments so in metaphorical terms we often talk about using carrots and sticks which are the instruments of hard power the metaphor for soft power would be more magnet in other words if you track people to get them to do what you want Uh, you can save on carrots and sticks. I I came up with the idea, as you said, at the end of the the 80s, uh, when the conventional wisdom was um, that the United States was in decline. Paul Kennedy's book, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, had made the New York Times bestseller list. And I thought there was something wrong with the argument that the Americans were going the way of Philip II Spain. Uh, and uh, so I totaled up what I call America's hard power resources, military and economic. Um, and then um, I said something is still missing, which is this ability to get others to do things because they want to. And that's when I came up with this uh, term soft power. And it's often uh, misused, as you said, uh, with people saying it means anything except military force. Uh, no, it's not that uh, not that simple. But it, uh, uh, I think that probably the biggest surprise to me about the use of soft power was in 2007 when Hu Jintao told the 
Communist Party meeting um, that China needed to increase its soft power, and it has spent tens of billions of dollars trying to do so. So it's a, it, as a concept, to me, it was to explain an anomaly in terms of interpreting what was happening to American power, but then it became picked up by China, uh, by the European Union, and others, and used in, in common discourse. And the context now is very different. So you basically coined the term probably at the, the height of American power, even though there was a lot of declinism around. If you look at the size of the US economy, its military spending, it was literally on the verge of winning the, the, the Cold War and, and becoming this unipolar force. And the idea of soft power was seen by many people as the perfect explanation for everything that happened in the 90s with the end of history, when a lot of Western ideas were being copied in other parts of the world and seemed to be flowing naturally into the domestic priorities of, of all sorts of different countries that were embracing capitalism for the first time, embracing liberal democracy. Um, how do you... Uh, and then in many ways, as you said, it then became something that people sought to achieve. It wasn't just something which was uh, which was uh, a product of uh, of the domestic political system, but it was it was being nurtured in the same way that other kinds of power are being nurtured. To what extent do you think that the um, that changed the the meaning of, of of soft power? I mean, how do you see? soft power as a currency having evolved um, since you since you coined the term? Well, it, it still is uh, relevant. Soft power is a form of power. Uh, yeah. Not necessarily good or bad. It's just a one way of getting others to do what you want. And I think um, it, it, people sometimes say to me, well, given the war in Ukraine or Hamas, uh, it shows that soft power is irrelevant. Um, I don't think it does. So if you look at Zelensky and his ability as a TV actor to put on that green T-shirt and to appeal as a victim, uh, that was attracting people with soft power. And that, in turn, led to an increase in Ukraine's hard power because Europe and America basically provided hard power resources because they were attracted to Ukraine, um, among other reasons. Uh, and the same thing with the Gaza war. Um, if, if hard power, if you say, is hard power more important than soft power? Obviously. But if you say, is soft power still relevant? Yes. I mean, one of the problems that Israel's having right now is uh, enormous cost to its soft power uh, of the way it's using its hard power. So it's soft, power, soft power is still relevant despite the changes in the world from the 90s to the 2020s. Um, but it, it, it's a complex relationship with hard power, not a simplistic alternative. So I think one of the other misconceptions people often have of you is because of this idea of soft power, I remember uh, going to Canada back in the 90s and they, were, they loved um, uh, soft power there. And a lot of people thought that you were a bit of a softie having coined this term of, of soft power. But actually... If you look at the story you tell in your book about your kind of long engagement, you've been involved in a lot of the, the hardest and most sort of scary bits of, of foreign policy or nuclear policy. You studied with Kissinger um, 
the way that you got to soft power was 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 not a kind of uh, didn't it didn't come from the from the peace movements. Um, it, it was a, a very different route towards it. Um, can you maybe talk a bit about that intellectual journey and how you got into into kind of foreign policy and and um, the uh, the impact of some of these kind of titanic figures that you kind of studied with and, and worked with over the years? Well, in, in the um, 1970s, uh, I joined uh, the uh, Carter administration and I was in charge of their policy on non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. At that time, if you remember, uh, there was a belief that nuclear weapons were going to spread very rapidly. Kennedy had said there would be 25 nuclear weapon states by the 70s. And uh, after the Arab oil embargo, uh, the view was that we were going to have to use plutonium. And the question is, uh, could we get 600 reactors up? And how would we manage a plutonium economy without widespread proliferation? So this this was the, uh, uh, many people thought that showed the decline of the U.S. What's interesting is that uh, through Carter's efforts, I think, uh, we were able to slow things down. And, uh, you know, today you have nine countries with nuclear weapons instead of 25. It uh, doesn't mean we're out of the woods. We still have, have to be very careful about it. But um, in, the, in the 70s, there was a, a fear that we were really on the precipice or the brink of of a major uh, nuclear proliferation. Uh, now we're seeing a, a, um, a much more gradual uh, uh, spread of nuclear weapons, and that makes it somewhat more manageable. But as I said, it's it's not over yet. But certainly, the, the as I try to describe in the book, the drama of, uh, of uh, working with others to try to slow the spread was... Uh, was quite uh, uh, an exciting period. I, I recount one anecdote in there where having negotiated all day with a French official who swore that the French were giving Pakistan a reprocessing plant to make plutonium uh, because it was going to be used for peaceful purposes only. And uh, I was able to release to him some intelligence showing the Pakistanis were planning to use it for a bomb. And the poor man fainted. And I thought, oh, my God, I've killed him. <laughs> but uh, in fact, it's just that he had spent so much time defending this position that when the evidence came in that cut his legs out from under him, so to speak, uh, he, he keeled over. <laughs> we, we eventually sorted that out by talking with, his, uh, with another French official, but there were some amusing moments as well as dramatic moments. Yeah, well, one of the great things about the book is, is you've been uh, a participant in a huge amount of, of really important historic events over, over the last few decades. That's a lovely story. Um, do you want to maybe um, talk a bit about some of the lessons we can learn from some of these other experiences for the, for the present day. So there's a lot of great power competition in your book. You were involved um, in, I mean, not just on the nuclear file, but in other aspects of great power competition during the Cold War. What do you think, you know, a lot of people say we're in Cold War II now. Um, do you think that that's a, an appropriate analogy or do you think it's, it's very different from the first Cold War? No, I think it's it. it there are some reasons to say Cold War II because you have 
great power competition with a, uh, a near peer rival in the form of China. Uh, but I think it, it, uh, it's misleading. It makes, our, makes it seem like our job is easier than it really is. If you think back to the real Cold War, uh, we had a lot of military interdependence with the Soviet Union, but virtually no economic or social interdependence. And we weren't yet worried about ecological interdependence. Uh, with China today, we have a military competition like the old or the real Cold War, but there's an enormous economic interdependence. Um, and in addition to that, there's um, ecological interdependence. The U.S. and China produce 40% of the carbon dioxide that's pushed into the atmosphere every year. And so it doesn't tr do any good to try to solve it by oneself unless you can get uh, some cooperation from the other side. So when people talk about a new Cold War, it assumes that you could decouple. Uh, if you decouple the economic interdependence beyond just selective decoupling, it would be devastating to the world economy. Uh, and if you decoupled on ecological interdependence, it would be devastating to, uh, to climate problems. So this is not like the Cold War in that sense. It, I've called it a cooperative rivalry. Others have called it a managed competition. Um, but it's not the same as the Cold War. But you, so you, one of the most amazing things about the work that you and Bob Kihane did on complex interdependence is that you both understood how much interdependence was changing the structure of, of global, uh, of international relations. But you also um, didn't simply have a kind of a rosy eyed perspective on how this was going to remove power from international relations, but you looked at how these links uh, were. Uh, were power relations and depended on the nature of, of interdependence. I think that was very, very prescient and a, a huge contribution in terms of understanding the situation that we're in at the moment, where people are having to come to terms with the fact that not all relationships are the same and that the structure of relationships between two countries matter a lot. But also, um, one of the big difficulties in terms of conceptualizing the world is not just about relationships between two countries, but that you have this web of relationships which are, are much harder to understand and much more unpredictable. Um, how do you think of what the US is doing on de-risking and its technological competition with China in that context? Do you think that um, they've got the right kind of balance between the competitive side and the idea of trying to de-risk and to make sure that, that the US doesn't end up in a situation of, of asymmetric uh, de uh, interdependence or on the wrong side of asymmetric interdependence with China? Or do you think that um, that they are moving too much towards decoupling and they're in danger of, um, of actually uh, creating dynamics which, uh, which are unhelpful? Well, if, if you go back to the classical uh, liberal views of interdependence um, uh, in IR theory, it was that the interdependence would produce peace uh, yeah. because each side would have such great stakes. And of course, that neglects the fact that the great powers in Europe in 1914 were each other's best trading partners, and that didn't prevent the war. Um, and so what Bob Cohen and I did it was say, interdependence can also be used as a weapon. Uh, 
it, it, it may contribute to peace, but not necessarily. And it can be used, particularly when it's asymmetrical. Uh, you depend on me more than I depend on you. It can be used as a weapon. And uh, we see that in the U.S.-China relationship today. If you said, let's, let's um, break all the economic interdependence with China, uh, that would remove the incentives for both the U.S. and China to uh, avoid uh, violent conflict. Uh, so there is still something left of that classical view. But it's also true that there's a lot of, um, of uh, weaponization of interdependence. That's not new at all. And um, so we have to learn to live with both aspects at the same time. And a good strategy uh, has to adjust to that. The, the U.S. Has, has tried, or under the Biden administration, has tried to um, uh, use a metaphor for this. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, has talked about having a, um, a high fence. A small with a high fence. Yeah. And, uh, the, the, and so in that sense, if you're saying, I'm not going to sell China uh, chips or algorithms which are going to help the PLA uh, take over Taiwan, um, that makes sense. On the other hand, if I um, were to ignore the fact that, um, that Taiwan is a major producer of chips, both for China and the U.S., and that that creates an interdependence which would hurt both of us if that if TSMC was destroyed in an invasion, then you're missing another important part of the equation. So I think what what Bob and I are trying to do is to say it's not either or; it's both. So why don't we stick with China for a second? Another term which you coined, which uh, had a lot of currency, was this idea of peak China. Um, and uh, you wrote an article, I think, about a year ago, saying that China has a lot of economic and demographic uh, problems, which could lead to to stagnation and could mean that this this idea that Chinese growth would would uh, massively outstrip American growth isn't necessarily uh, going to uh, to materialize. Um, do you think that? Uh, and that played into a kind of wider debate about groupthink um, uh, on China in in the U.S. and uh, a sense that that a lot of American foreign policy makers think that the the Chinese are ten feet four tall and um, and overestimate the threat. Um, I mean that was obviously a big issue during the the Cold War as well, like right sizing the the Soviet threat, and there are all sorts of debates going on over the years. And, and in fact, many people probably did overestimate the Soviet threat at, at various different points. How, where do you stand on that at the moment? Do you think that we're right sizing the the Chinese uh, threat, or do you think that um, things have got out of whack? Well, I think the Biden administration has it about right, but the American Congress doesn't. I mean, American public opinion uh, has shifted from about half the people having a positive view of China to, uh, I don't know, it's 80 or 90 percent who have a negative view. Um, so it, it depends which who you're talking about. But um, I, I have argued for some time that getting a strategy right means neither under nor overestimating your opponent or your challenger. And uh, I think the Americans were in a position of overestimating uh, China for some time. But if you look at China's situation today, 
Um, and look at the major problems it faces. I'm not talking about short run, like the property market or the, the collapse of particular firms. I'm talking about the long-term trends. Uh, China has a demographic problem. Its, popu- its labor force peaked in 2015. Now, the classical economic solution to that is uh, solve it by ad- adding technology um, and then you say, um, what's happened to Chinese technology? Well, it's doing very well in some areas, but overall total factor productivity um, it has gone down in China, not up. And they say, well, where would new technology come from? Well, it comes very often from private entrepreneurs more than from big state-owned enterprises that get subsidies from the government. And um, uh, what's China doing with these private entrepreneurs? It's clamping down on tighter party control, sort of killing geese that lay the golden eggs. So I think China has some has some really severe structural problems, even without talking about the current uh, slowdown of the Chinese economy in the post-COVID period and and uh, given the property collapse. So when you're at Harvard, you work with some really important thinkers and actors, and um, maybe we, we could talk a bit about uh, some of these people that you work with. So what, you know, you, you talk about how um, you audited Henry Kissinger's courses as a student, and then you end up taking over his, his offices when he went to Washington. Can you talk a bit about, about your experience of, uh, of being taught by Henry Kissinger and, and what you uh, remember about him from those days? Well, Henry uh, was never sort of warm and cuddly mentor. Um, uh, he was thinking about himself and power most of the time. He and I became friendly and stayed friendly for for all his life. Um, he used to send me notes, uh, handwritten notes, when he liked one of my columns. So what I'm about to say is, is, is that... Um, it wasn't a nice, warm uh, mentorship. It was a question of whether I was useful to him. Um, in you know, 1968, um, he invited me to go down and consult for Nelson Rockefeller when Henry was then, uh, looked like he was going to be the foreign policy advisor at Rockefeller. Of course, Rockefeller didn't get the nomination. Nixon did. And when Nick, when Henry went to work for Nixon, um, uh, he more or less dropped me. He, he, you know, I was, I was, I was a Rockefeller Republican, not a Nixon Republican. Um, but then when I went into the State Department um, and was on the transition team, uh, Henry suddenly decided he he wanted to become friends again. And I remember him calling me up into his magnificent office on the seventh floor of the State Department and saying. Uh, you're uh, Joe. You're the the only Harvard professor I would recommend to be in the State Department in the next administration. And I said, "Well, Henry, that's great. Thank you, but uh, you should realize I just wrote an article summarizing the pluses and minuses of your tenure." And he said, "What? What minuses?" <laughs> so I mean, it was I I I actually got along with Henry and liked him. But it, when sometimes people say, "Oh, you're his protege," or "You're uh, you were brought up by him," uh, we 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 have a, res- a lot of respect for each other. 
but uh, it wasn't warm and fuzzy. Um, so um, there's been lots of talk about the pluses and minuses, um, you know, the opening to China, the work he did in the Middle East to push the Soviets out and to, to start uh, changing the relationship between Israel and, and its Arab neighbours like Egypt, um, the detente with the Soviet Union on the plus side. And then, you know, there's a long list on the minus side <laughs> encompassing um, uh, you know, his contribution to, to lengthening the war in Vietnam, the bombing of, of Cambodia, um, Chile, uh, obviously features quite prominently. Um, are there things which you think people um, missed out in the in the uh, attempt to to judge him and to draw up balance sheets of his legacy while you were uh, after he died this year? Well, that comes pretty close to the balance sheet that I wrote uh, for uh, the journal. Uh, foreign affairs uh, uh, right after he died. Um, there, there are some large strategic questions like the opening to China, the detente and the ending of the Cold War, which were truly important and creative. But there's some actions like the bombing of Cambodia or the overthrow of the Chilean government, which were really inexcusable. They weren't necessary for realpolitik. Uh, if you want, they were uh, they were things Henry could have avoided, and uh, yet when one takes the pluses and minuses all together, um, I think the pluses were uh, outweighed the minuses. So there are very few Harvard professors who've been quoted as much as you have on the foreign policy side. But one of the people who might uh, be a rival of yours is, is Samuel Huntington, whose ideas um, were kind of strangely even more popular outside of the US and the West than uh, than they were um, uh, in uh, the US uh, and the West, even though they were very influential in, in, in Western debates as well. But the clash of civilizations, much beloved of Russians, of Chinese, of Turks, of people all over the world. Can you talk a bit about, about how you see his contribution? And, and uh, I mean, he's got a very different way of thinking about the world to the way that you did, but he's a, an, another really important figure, I think, who you, you uh, must have had an office just down the corridor from. Yeah, absolutely. I, and Sam and I were closer, even though we didn't always agree, but uh, uh, he, he was very helpful to me in my career and, and we were, were very friendly at the family level and so forth. But I felt that his his book uh, about the clash of civilizations was a misstep uh, in his otherwise very clear-headed uh, career of thinking about American uh, American American foreign policy, and I, I and I told him this, and we often would argue about it, so it was not uh, not too much of a surprise. I think what he by using Toynbee's concepts of civilizations or of grandiose terms like Islam and Africa, uh, he missed the point that, um, yes, cultural and civilizational issues were becoming more important as a source of conflict in the aftermath of the Cold War, but it it, it was often what uh, Freud called the narcissism of small differences. After all, people were killing each other in Northern Ireland. Um, Protestants and Catholics, and you could say, oh, well, that's a clash of civilizations. I defy you to walk down the streets of Belfast, and unless you know the name of the pub they're going into, to look at somebody and say, 
this is a Catholic and that's Protestant. Um, and the same thing, you know, with some of the bloodiest battles were within Islam, um, and not just between Islam and the rest and the West. Uh, and when you talk about Africa, where there are many violent conflicts, um, to talk about Africa as one civilization uh, is a mistake. I mean, I, I, as I describe in the book, I lived in East Africa for a year and a half doing my work for my thesis. And I very quickly learned that there are many African civilizations, even within one country like Uganda or, or Kenya. Yeah. So Sam and I, Sam and I just agreed to disagree on the point. And maybe just to, to kind of build on that a little bit, you spent a lot of time working as a policymaker. You spent a lot of time as a thinker and an educator. How important are ideas in terms of uh, how foreign policy gets made? I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, ideas like Kennan's idea of containment or your idea of soft power or Huntington's idea of, of civilizations have quite a big impact on on the world but you know other people say that the you know what matters are kind of material forces and it's all about structure other people you know still believe in the 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 great men (laughs) theories of history and it's about kind of agency um where do you put ideas in the mix well i think uh, again that the the danger is is what you might call uh, reductionism where people say you can reduce it all to uh, force, or you can reduce it all to ideas. And in fact, the interplay is much more subtle than that. You know, in the uh, in the short term, uh, in a given battle, uh, the sword is much mightier than the pen. But in the long term, it's the pen that guides people's minds of the arms that wield the sword. And uh, so I think that uh, uh, you know, both are important. It's hard to, I mean, if you look at the situation of the, of the Cold War, um, obviously you can interpret that as a bipolar balance of power between Russia and Western Europe and the U.S., but the uh, ideas also matter. As um, Georg Lundstadt, the Norwegian political scientist, once said, you can look at Europe after World War II as consisting of two empires, uh, a Soviet empire and American empire. The big difference though, as you put it, is the American empire was an empire by invitation. That meant that when there was rebellion within the Soviet empire, as there was in Hungary or or the Czech, Czechoslovakia as it then was, uh, the Soviets had to use force to put it down. Uh, the Americans didn't. Maybe we're coming to the end of our time and we could have gone on for hours and hours because there's so much in your book and you've been involved in so many fascinating things. But because we're the European Council on Foreign Relations, maybe we should end with Europe. Um, and um, as well as being a kind of home of, of two empires, there are a lot of debates about the extent to which Europe is and can be a, a kind of a force in the world and an agent uh, of, of change. Um you talked a bit about about how you see China and how you see the U.S. Where does the uh, EU uh, and where do Europeans fit into your kind of mental image of of, uh, of global politics now, but also maybe looking forward at the next 10, 20 years? 
Well, I've always been a supporter of greater European unity and activism. Um, uh, but I think Europe hasn't always lived up to that. It's um, uh, when I've given speeches in Europe, including uh, for you, I've talked about the Europeans need to do more for their hard power, not just rest on their soft power. But uh, we don't want to mistake what Europe has done. If you take crucial issues such as um, uh, um, antitrust policy, or if you take issues like privacy in the cyber world, um, the Americans aren't setting the pace there. The Europeans are. Uh, you can't ignore the Brussels effect. So, if, if again, if you think of different forms of power, the Europeans uh, have done more in uh, uh, terms of uh, economics and uh, and also in soft power. Uh, but I think they they may want to do more in hard power. Um, and that may be the net effect of Ukraine, um, uh, particularly if the American Congress messes up support for Ukraine. Um, you notice the Germans now uh, going up to 2% of GDP for the military. Um, so it may be that Putin will do more for European unity than, uh, than the Americans will. So uh, a, a sober note to, <laughs> to end uh, on. But we have one thing left to do on the, the podcast, which is our bookshelf section. And everybody should obviously have one book on their bookshelf, which is uh, Joe's new uh, book, uh, Life in the American Century. We'll put links up to that on, the, on our website. But um, what's on your bookshelf at the moment, apart from your own book, Joe? Well, I... I... Uh, was quite struck um, by the book by Chris Miller called Chip War, where the subtitle is The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And um, Miller, who, who's a professor at, um, at, at Tufts, um, has been able to capture uh, a fairly esoteric subject. Um, uh, you know, what's the difference between a five nanometer and a seven nanometer chip and who produces them and why that relates to power. But he's been able to do this in a way which is consistent with um, uh, traditional theories of international politics and make sense of it. So I, I found myself quite intrigued um, by, by the book. It's over, also very readable, which helps. Uh, and, and it's one. So uh, you can even listen to him on the on the podcast. We had an episode with him about six months ago, I think. So, well, uh, well, anyway, all all to the better. And the other book <laughs> I would I would mention um, is the book by Susan Shirk uh, uh, called Overreach: How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. And Susan, who's Mandarin speaking and and is a lifelong um, uh, student of China, actually served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for East Asia in the State Department, uh, argues that, uh, that China made a huge mistake in uh, becoming hubristic after the uh, economic crisis of 2008, which originated in Wall Street and which they interpreted as proof of American decline. Uh, and this has given rise over time to what's sometimes called wolf warrior diplomacy. 
And that's totally counterproductive for China. So Susan, Susan goes into some detail of how the, uh, how the Chinese overreached. And I, the combination of, of uh, Chris Miller's book and Susan Shirk's book um, cover a lot of the material that we just covered in our chat. Thank you very much. Um, two great books um, and uh, Joe's book, even better, I have to say. Um, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, you are, uh, I think, one of the most important uh, guides to understanding how global politics works uh, in the world at the moment, have been for, for many, many uh, decades, which are beautifully brought to life in your memoir. And uh, it's been lovely talking to you again. Thank you very much, uh, Joe. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, please do subscribe to future episodes on whatever platform you use to download this podcast on. And while you're there, it'd be lovely if you could give us a positive review or a five-star rating. But for now, from Joe Nye and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sunder, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. Sarat.